A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us yet. That point for us today would be through chapter 32 of Mistborn the Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are hungover. I mean, words and whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. One of us is hungover. One of us is really sore from, like, working on, uh, like, home improvement projects. I am also sore, so it's unfair of you to not assume that I am sore and hungover. I did drink. I did drink quite a bit yesterday. You know, mm-hmm. in experimentation. Anyway, point being, welcome to Words and Whiskey. I am dying inside. Today is our eighth <laughs> episode <laughs> discussing Mistborn, The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson, and we're going to chat about chapters 29 through 32. Last night, I had I was a part of a cocktail contest, and so there were 10 cocktails on the table. I won one of the categories, and I took second or third in the other one. And you feel robbed for that one, right? I do feel robbed. There's there's a longer story here. But before we get into that longer story, PJ, what are you drinking? Let's start there. Let's actually there is a longer story that you can listen to if you subscribe to our Patreon and listen to the Devil's Guy. I already talked about it. You're right. (laughs) So (laughs) if you're a member of our Patreon, again, this episode will come out before it changes. If you want to join our Patreon, you can do it at a slightly lower tier at the barback tier. Um, for three dollars, if you get in before the end of January, if not, you will be permanently at the four dollar tier price instead. The, this will release just before the month turns over, so you've got like two or three days. I can't do that good of math right now. I kind of have a degree in math, and I can't do that math right now. <laughs> you almost have two <laughs> degrees in math. <laughs> well, I, I have a minor in math for my first degree, so. I know, but on uh, top of that, like engineering and physics, like, come on, yeah. <laughs> are math degrees. I mean, okay, Applied I can just math. click on, I can just click on my calendar. Let's see. It comes out on the 27th. So you've got four days today and three more days before pricing goes up to $4 for the barback yep. tier. The reason we're doing that is simply because anything below $3.50 Patreon takes a larger chunk, so moving up to four means that we get more of a percentage of what you guys are. We can do more stuff for, like, effectively yeah. the cost of a cup of coffee, and it, it impacts us more yeah. directly by making it does. a small change. Exactly. All right, PJ, what are you drinking? <laughs> so, it is morning time. It is morning so, time, this time. Morning. It's a rare time. As I mentioned last episode, destigmatize old fashioned old fashions in the morning. <laughs> I can't believe you did this. <laughs> so it has maple syrup, so it's breakfast. It is a rye maple old fashioned. And what I really want to so I'll just give the breakdown of the cocktail real quick. It is three ounces of rye, half an ounce of maple syrup, four dashes of orange bitters, 
and a cocktail chair. I would have added orange. I didn't have an orange, but I would I would have garnished with an orange swath, but didn't have an orange. So, but that's that's how I normally would have made this like rye maple orange old fashioned. So instead, I used orange bitters. But what I really want to talk about is this rye. It is fucking delicious. It's very, very like rye spicy. You know, like some ryes are more like bourbon in that they're like a little bit sweeter, a little bit smoother. This one actually like leans into the spice of the rye, which I really appreciate. And also it's from a new distillery that's opening up like 20 minutes away from my house. Yeah. So what uh, what distillery? Talk about it. Stern's American. So technically this is the first batch. I met the owner the owner and distiller at the liquor store. I went to go get rum. All I went to go get was rum. I needed a rum to make a basil daiquiri. That's really fucking good. And I'll be doing that on the show soon. But I went to get rum and ended up with a one seven five of Reykja rum, <laughs> which is, I ended up with this, this bottle of rye. I met the owner distiller. This is batch number one, like the only batch they've ever made. I don't think it's even on the shelf. He just had a little like table set up and he was like meeting with people. I got a couple stickers, got to talk to the guy for a little bit and he signed my bottle, which is super cool uh, and kind of fun. But that's, I, I looked at the bottle. This was distilled by Bent Brewstillery out of St. Paul. I think I can't remember where they're out of. I think they're out I, of St. Paul. Saint Paul. Yeah. Or uh, Roseville. They're out of Roseville. Oh, Rose. Yeah. Okay. So South their distillery is not yet set up. They have the building. They're building it out. But 95 proof, spicy, which is like a super, super plus for me. Finished on charred pimento wood, which I've never seen before. Pimento wood. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Weird. I'm I'm super pumped. What, what are you following that up with? Oh. Oh. No, t- talk. I'm going hyper local today, Crossland. Yeah. No, um, I was just going to say, he's a super cool dude. And I'm excited to like go to his place of business whenever they actually open up. But like I said, going hyper local today, I have a bottle of something that you and I used to fawn over quite a bit when we lived in St. Cloud together, True. which is Beaver Island Brewing Company's Barrel Age series. So this is Son of Drago. Which, first of all, has some of my favorite bottle art of any beer. It is very, like, very Russian in design with boxing gloves. Very simplistic, very, like, very stylized. And it looks really, really cool. But it is their Revolution 3, their third anniversary, like, commemorative beer. Aged for, I think, 18 months on wild turkey barrels. So wild um, turkey barrels. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Wild turkey <laughs> barrels. So I'm I'm super pumped. I've been saving this for years. I can't remember when this came out. Let's see. I think it was like twenty eighteen, right? I think Son of Drago did. I think but so. I think, I think so I, I think Rev three was twenty sixteen? Yes, I think that was twenty sixteen. Right. But Son of Drago I think it was twenty eighteen. Anyway, Crossland, what are you drinking? <laughs> I am obviously hungover, folks, in case you were blissfully unaware. I am having what I'm calling the bloody fucking help me. It is, it's just a Bloody Mary. Nothing crazy. 
Reikia vodka, two ounces. So this the the mix actually I should I should clarify. My younger brother, Bingham, moved in with my brother in law and sister for like a month. Like just went and hung out at the beginning of the pandemic because he didn't want to be kind of on campus in school. He he had time. He was like, fucking, I can do this remotely. I'm gonna go hang out with my siblings. So he moved in with Piper and Jake, and they perfected over the course of that month the Bloody Mary mix recipe of their choosing and choice. So this is in their spirit, in their style. I am missing an ingredient. I replaced it with something else. It's spicier. It is fucking hot. So we're going to start with the base mix. You've got two shots of vodka in this bad boy, 16 ounce glass, ice to like fill. So you like put a, put a good amount of ice in two shots of vodka, pepper throughout. So make sure you, you heavily pepper it. Charleston, mix which is like a spicy bloody mary mix it's a not, particular not, brand you can use it not charleston choose not charleston choose uh bingham actually bingham prefers the zing zang but this is like the premium version of that and he's like do the zing zang for most people and then you do a little bit of pickled jalapeno uh juice so you pour in just like a little bit of the jalapeno juice out of your jalapeno jar like maybe a half ounce of that hot sauces so Start with a, generally you start with a Frank's Tabasco, or Frank's base, Frank's hot base, like maybe a half ounce, and then with Tabasco you do like maybe a quarter ounce, so ratios there. What I did is slightly different, I did the Tabasco and a scorpion pepper Tabasco, because I am a fucking moron. This is so hot, like, it's delicious, but this is, every time I take a sip, PJ's been watching me because we're on camera, but like every time I take a fucking sip, I like flinch physically because <laughs> it's so hot. Mm. And I only put two dashes of the scorpion in this, so it's not that much. It's just so pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. Especially being a liquid, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, fuck. All right. You're going to know every time I take yeah. a drink this episode. That's that's all I'm yeah. saying. Um, that's fair. <laughs> everyone will know every time we take a drink. I am following that up with. A beverage that I shared in the Discord previously, but from Highwire Brewing, the three-year Sour Blonde. So this is kind of like an anniversary beer that they're doing, but it's also, it's a three-year aged Sour Blonde. And it is so good. This is one of the best beers I've had, bar none. I love, like, aged Sours. This is... They they get so complex, and you get... Uh huh. Because... Because you can't you can't do something super super sweet like that, mm-hmm. and that's what that's the state of sours right now are mm-hmm. like fruit bombs. Yep. So these aged sours are very mouthfeel wise, they're thin but effervescent usually, but v- like really tart and really complex with like oakiness or uh, I mean just just a little bit more of a depth of character from the aging process. Super fun. I love, I love aged sours. I love Apparently, aged sours oh, to your, to your point. I was just oh, going to say, I was like, that is one of the, that's one of my favorite things. I'm so glad to get to have this. So from high wire brewing, the three year barrel aged three year sour, I'm going to go back and grab two more is what I decided. Yeah. Like it Sounds is. Good. Oh my God. Yeah. Sit, sit on them. I've got shit ton of bottles. Yeah. I need to go through them. Time to move into the episode, I think. So, with that, let's move into PJ's predictions. I didn't take a look at any of these. We've got one here for you. So, 
reading this. But then we get a conversation with Lady Shan where she seems to recruit Vin, believing her soothing would be enough to push her into service. But more importantly, there's the question of what Shan knows about the text that Ellen has and what she plans on doing with that information. What do you think was the question? Your answer was... Shan seems much more slippery than other noble ladies, and I can't help but think that it could be some sort of trap for Vin. For instance, if Shan already knows exactly what those texts are and is using this as a test to see what Vin's alignment is, it could also be that she's just suspicious of Ellen and, like the book seems to be implying, is using her soothing to get more info. So, I don't know if that's wrong, but it's not the point. <laughs> I I think it's I think you're you're right, but we didn't define the question well enough. So yeah, I'll take the drink. For no, 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 no. You won't. I didn't say Mistborn. Oh, fair enough. You're right. You you. That was actually the fun part of this conversation. Is I was seeing if you were going to figure it out. I didn't figure this out when I read it the first time. No, I was I, not, I I was not I didn't at, at all. all, and I was shocked when that reveal happens in that moment that we'll talk about in a bit. Mm. But it was. It was a moment. It was good. I had completely forgotten the idea that Mistborn were like hidden, even within the noble society. Like I knew they were rare, but since they knew she was a soother, I had just written it off like, okay, these people know who's an Alamancer here and what they are. Mm-hmm. So she's a soother. She's a soother. All right, cool. Isn't that interesting, though? She's probably consistently a soother, you know? Like, that's an interesting kind of, like, layer and flavor on top of the story is the idea that every time we've met Shan, she's been a a soother. And we finally get this perspective of her being a a mistborn, which is interesting. We'll get into that in a second. So, I drank for that. I, I don't know if it really answered anything, but... Yeah, I don't think you actually put an answer there. Per our I don't think there word, was an answer there. <laughs> we, we have one more here as well. Shan's dismissal of Vin on her approach seems strange. What do you think she's plotting? So this is, I think I actually, I think we'll get into this later, but I'll just read my, my response. Yeah. It is strange. I would have guessed that she's playing them both, but if that were the case, she would have tried to keep Vin closer as it stands, I assume she's going to make a move towards taking Ellen down p- politically or otherwise and letting Vin be close to her would risk Ellen learning her plan. Yeah. I think that's accurate. I think you are entirely accurate. That was a really good – it was a non-specific, but <laughs> – you're done with your cocktail. Specific, but a good guess. Like You can see I, that? I think you did it. Yeah. You, oh, we have cameras on or something? You can see that I drank all of my old-fashioned. Hot! All right. This is so <laughs> spicy, dude. I will never use the scorpion pepper hot sauce in this again. It's good. Like, it still tastes good, but it's overwhelming. So, with that, let's move into the breakdown of the book. We start with here, chapter 29. Let's talk about this logbook entry, right, that we talked about last week. Just kidding. Not not the last week logbook, but this like fucking two pages of logbook that we get here right before the Well of Ascension. I'm talking about Farrakemi, talking about some opinions about Rashik, talking about a number of different things. We find out a little bit later that this is the end of the logbook, but I want you to just evaluate the logbook for what it is here. Mm-hmm. What do you think now that you've read just about all of it? Yeah, I've got a couple thoughts on there. Like we, I, I know... We know that he's 
aware of their ferrochemy and their ability to like save up attributes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, that's the phrase he explicitly yeah. uses is that they right. like saved up their strength or whatever. I'd be really curious to know if he's aware of how they do it, like the process by which they are able to do this mm-hmm. or to like, just really to what extent in general he understands he, he is a fa- afraid of it though. He's like, racistly afraid of it which is crazy like he is i don't know if he yeah yeah i suppose so he's got this like unknown he is xenophobic for sure for sure but not for no reason like it's not just being afraid because they're different culturally he's afraid because they're different culturally and very clearly way more equipped and way stronger and like could actually become this dominant force that he's afraid of them becoming racist was definitely the wrong term he's xenophobic but xenophobic makes he also believes in the power of the people at the same time like he's he's curious as to why they haven't taken over but at the same time he's also positive on some of their identity things that are kind of like going on in the background as well yeah for sure it's super super cool so i mean fuck that guy but cool (laughs) fuck the lord ruler cool to hear yeah, like I'm gonna take this like very stark stance. Fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck that guy. He's um, not a good dude. <laughs> he's not a good dude. Guy writing the book is not a good dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do we know yet if he's snapped? Like we we haven't had any references to Alamancy. All we know he he's afraid of these like powers, which tells me he's probably not been been able to do anything like that and we still don't know as far as i understand if allomancy exists before the ascension or if like it's tied to the ascension itself or if they're completely separate things like it's it's still as far as i can remember completely unknown unless you can prove me otherwise we are not provided an answer to any of that however we are provided some like theory posting like some ship posting stuff which is, we know Ferrochemy exists, right? But we get right. no hint of Alamancy. We get no hint of anything else, any other magic system, any anything else existing. So I'm just going to go ahead and yeah, throw it a guess out. here. Fired out. Alamancy was created by the Lord Ruler by exploiting something with Ferrochemy. Mm-hmm. Like he, he took that process after learning more about it and crafted something new from it yeah that's okay my mouth is on fire god damn it i just need to get through this no i i I think just chug it man your intuition is great i think i'm going to keep that as a prediction as well about like fair chemi and like when alamancy came into being so that that makes a good amount of sense we've discussed this a little bit prior Mm -hmm. but this is kind of a new way to approach it and look at it i also think it's relevant to this reading because i think it's probably similar origins to what Vin is doing with ingesting Sazed's like earring. That's an interesting move, right? It's got a very different kind of, when we get there, we'll talk a lot more about this, but that is a very, very interesting combination of things to like suss out exactly how that works. So yeah, identity is just such a crazy thing. It's just such a, such a good thing. So, 
there's so much inside of the logbook. I love the way that that logbook plays, right? And yeah. we get it right at the end of the logbook that this is the this is the end truly of the whole thing. Given that idea of everything that we have and there's going to be little to no new information for the rest of the book at the at our chapter headers, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Where, where's your head at with the logbook? Just in general kind of like what what do you think about what can exist now? Like Vin has more information technically than we have. She's read the whole thing. But she thinks it's not useful because it didn't reveal things and also it ended too early, which is funny also in like a meta contextual way. But I think we got a decent amount of information from it. It's not what she was looking for. She was looking for a guidebook on allomancy and that's absinthe. Not absinthe. That's absinthe. <laughs> I wanted to make a joke, but I'm in pain. Fuck me. So my immediate thoughts about sort of the context of this part of the story and how it relates to the logbook, because I I haven't really thought about the logbook in general. I think it will be really interesting to learn about the Terrasmen in general. And given more context, I think it'll be interesting to look back on these passages and see how they relate to future context, but I don't know what to make of it right now. I think we get a lot about the Lord Ruler and who this person was before the Ascension. And right now, he seems like a very noble, guided, honorable person just following through with some sort of prophetic sort of path that he fell into. We get a passage later on, like one of the chapter headers, that kind of brings that into question, where he becomes aware of, or or he lets us know that he's aware that it could bring this tyranny along with it, intrinsically. So there, there's that to think about, but more than anything, the comments from Sazed are important in that the reason why the the book stops here and he's immortal and for all we know he has a perfect memory i think that's been mentioned before and maybe that's just a myth maybe that's just a way of like making him seem even grander than he already is to the ska or the the oppressed population as it is but if he has a perfect memory why would he need to write anything down this was a this was a journal this was a diary this wasn't meant to be published or anything like that. What is interesting is that he kept it. So that, that brings a whole yeah. that he kept the book. If he had a perfect memory and didn't need to like try to remember things in general from here on out, why would he keep it and display it as a religious text almost? Like he it's yeah. it is a it is treated it was it was in a holy room, some like a lot of like artifices of of kind of religion and worship were in the room. Um, and it was like heavily guarded. Yeah. That didn't seem like the, the cherished item necessarily. She picked it up as a shield. Ben did, <laughs> which is hysterical. Like the, the combination there is, is very interesting. And also yeah. we can think about the way that like the inquisitor reacted, maybe didn't want to kill the book <laughs> as its own problem, mm-hmm. but yeah, 
I'm so glad that you have this reaction to the logbook because in my first reading, I, I felt very similarly. When we get this like outpouring, this full outpouring in the end of the book, it is just so fundamentally – we're still left with so many questions. We're still yeah. left just like Vin is with questions and it makes it really fun to explore the rest of the book because now you have to you have to piece it together. So, Right. Yeah. It's kind of fun. Sweet, man. I love that breakdown. That is hard to pin what you said as a prediction, though. I put it as a prediction, but you know, I don't think that's a prediction. Yeah, you just you went on a tirade, and it was a good tirade. Like it was, it was not even like aggressive or anything like that. But yeah, you, but you it, good, but it, there's nothing like point. definitive about what I said. No, right, right. So I don't know. It's all good. I get. I guess. I guess my prediction here is, and and you might have to like not even tie it to a question specifically, but my prediction is the reason the Lord ruler stopped writing in the logbook is because he now has a perfect memory. You're right. That's, that's about the line. Yeah. With that, we'll move into the next little comment discussion that happens. And I'm so glad that again, like we've, we've talked about these logbooks over the course of weeks and weeks and weeks at this point, And you've been like, I don't know what the fuck this means sometimes. And other times you've been like, this connects directly with the story. And then you're like, I don't know what the fuck that is. And now you're like, you have enough context and it's kind of like filled out. Yeah. And it's, it's so cool to like hear your opinions at this point. So I'm sure mm-hmm. listeners enjoy it, but I really, I, I get a kick out of it. So I also really enjoy the conversation and discussion here between Vin and Sazed. It starts off in kind of like a fun, lighthearted beat. She makes a couple of jokes at his expense and they, they bounce back and forth like humorously, especially in Vin's like see through BO like speech. It's, it's kind of clever and funny, but it moves to a very serious point. One that we pointed out, but Vin is actually afraid of losing her friends. Now the people, the life that she's gained over the course of the last eight months so far, it's, it's just intense. It's a different style of, of living for her and says it as is his place in the story returns with a healthy dose of wisdom and realism, like returns kind of the volley in a very real way. What do you mm. think of this? By the way, I, I haven't said this yet. This is my favorite week of chapters. Like this is, this is philosophical. It's, a great- it's deep. It's internal. Like this is mm-hmm. a great week that way. Yeah. This screams you. This does scream like this whole thing. The three, <laughs> Three chapters here scream me, and one is a good chapter still, but it's separate from the rest. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. So, super cool, super fun to like dive into this because like, the entire time I was reading this, it was this is something Crossland loves. Like, this is this is why, if I were to why guess, not why you read, why we're covering this series, I'm sure this set of chapters had a profound impact it's on a, it's emotionally deep like this is this is vin's revelations here are profound and emotional and incredible this is like we haven't we haven't finished the book yet so i don't necessarily want to sell or pitch this entirely but brandon sanderson is a very plain writer and that's a good thing for what he's doing like he is very clean easy to digest writer but every once in a while he ducks in to something like this and hits these like really hardcore emotional notes perfectly. And I just have such a tough time slamming on him saying that he's just like a clean writer when this happens. So yeah. it's so good. These are some of my favorite chapters, though, inside of the series. Well, inside the book, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. This yeah. is why it was sold on this book series. As far as this conversation between Sazed and Vin, like it was great. It was awesome. And Vin's worries are something that's super relatable to basically everybody. It is what people think about when they go to another chapter in their lives approaching going to college after high school. Like, am I going to lose all my friends? Turns out, no, basically, basically all my friends are basically still my friends from high school. Friends. Yeah. 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 There's that, but start a podcast network yeah, with, right. uh, with your friends with your from friends. high school. Yeah. But that was a worry. I was mm-hmm. absolutely, that was a worry. And we had Starcraft to like bind us. So it's it true. Fine. What I did appreciate was Stalsai. How how do you pronounce that that group of people that Sazed talks about? The people that believed in a finite amount of bad luck? Oh, yes. Yeah. I think you're right. Astalsi. You're close. Astalsi. Astalsi. Yeah. Vin's response is very level-headed, but pessimistic in that Mm -hmm. if there's a finite amount of bad luck, there has to be a finite amount of good luck as well. And that just completely cuts down their entire, like, their entire religion to a certain extent. I think that that's what's so fun about this. Estalsi is – Sazed's religions in general are so interesting. The idea that this man is a storage unit for religions and just gets to share them and talk about all these different things, even though they have conflicting viewpoints, is fascinating. The way that he chooses to share the ones that he does with people when they need something is incredible. It's it's hopeful. It's optimistic from his perspective where he he's like, here is this information. Here is this knowledge that I have about this thing. And I hope it gives you some kind of solace. I don't expect you to convert, but I hope it lends you solace that people believe in the same kind of thing that you need right now. There's an entire group of people that did that in the past. And that's why, like, this Estalsi thing with, like, good luck, bad luck being finite is so good and interesting is because it all it all just ties together so well, especially under Vin, someone who's experienced the ups and downs, mostly the downs and now the ups of life. And it, she just has this read. We talked about her powers at the beginning of the book, too. Our, she refers to them as luck. And so it's... God, man, it's so good. Yeah. This is where the book ties it together for me, man. Like this is this is the the section of chapters where it just cranks in that extra little wrench that makes sure that your shit is tight. Like this is this is that wrench for me. Yeah. So the other point that's I don't know, kind of ironic here is that Sazed, I can't remember if it was just before this or like later on in this section. Where Sazed jokes about Vin becoming an optimist based on some of her comments. Yeah. I think it was right before this. This comment about her becoming an optimist paired with her saying like, well, we've got to have a finite amount of good luck too. So why use it up? And like, man, it it perfectly encapsulates the way she's always acted, even though we've seen her change so much throughout this story. Yeah. And, like, get away from that person that she was who was so focused on her luck. And this little four-chapter section is one that is both reversion and acknowledgement of her character, right? So this is, like, we, we see a full a full arc, a full sway of what's going on with Vin here. And I love that. It's, it's so good. Which, again, like you said, 
you're like, this is why we're reading it. And I'm like, yeah, this is why we're reading this book, PJ. Good call. It's a fun heist. Yep. There's a lot of other stuff. The magic system's crazy. But a combination of those things, this is like, again, I said it earlier, this is the wrench that tightens the nut right where it needs to be. Ah, man. Vin does, based on this conversation, she moves in and talks about other things with Sazed as well. She tries something odd. She burns Sazed's pewter mind metal. And that provides us with a bit more of a delineation of which we had kind of like previously talked about a little bit. But it, it lets us know that there is something that cannot be used here in a metal mind the same way that anything else is. She was stronger like pewter, but she couldn't access the powers of fair Kemi. Dude, this was such a blue balls movie. <laughs> I was so excited for something fucking crazy to happen. <laughs> I was so ready for it. I'm not convinced this is the end of it. I'm not convinced that that's that's all there is to it like she can't access it she can see it but can't access it fuck that she'll break in yeah yeah it's definitely it's a fun little bit especially because she's experimenting so it's wild because it's a little bit different it's just a little off from what you'd expect which is fun it's good tasty spicy delicious Mm. Mm. not unlike my bloody mary of which is still torturing me for everyone at home we jump from Vin's perspective to Kelsier's, and we also see a map that's tucked inside of this, like, table leg, which is a very interesting way of doing this, sent by Marsh, from the, I put the Canton of Steel, the Steel Inquisition, I, I don't know what the fuck I wrote here, the, the Steel Ministry, <laughs> I've also been reading the first law again, so... I fucked it up a little bit. <laughs> really, really interesting that we've got this picture now of the soothing stations. We know that there are like 33 of them or 35 of them, something like that, and that they're putting up new ones. But even more so that Kelsier mentally notes how soon Sazed will become kind of like a teacher of his people. So we move from Marsh to Sazed and kind of thoughts inside of this chapter from his his perspective. It's kind of an optimistic note. We get this like really interesting picture of of Marsh first like sharing information but then on top of that like Sazed and kind of Kelsier's dreams for Sazed is really interesting yeah yeah I guess what I want to highlight in this section is a very nice quote a very profound meaningful quote <laughs> and it's it's Kelsier talking to Breeze he's directly addressing Breeze yeah you're right okay yeah I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about too proud not to be humble enough to go crawling about in a dignified manner, of course. And then, we misborn need not make sense. It's it's especially funny to start with, like, we need do, or we need not, or, like, he, he has another one. We need to do more than simply avoid. Like, and every sentence starts with these kind of, like, sentences. He's just making jokes. He's just, he's yeah. kicking the fucking ball. And he's just, he kills it in this, this section humor wise like kelsier's on on something i'm not gonna lie like kelsier kelsier is himself for sure but he is the funniest version of himself here he's the most friendly version of himself which is obviously important because of the kind of marsh thing that happens later which is a completely you know he's got to be a real person before he gets real angry um, and upset so as far as the conversation about sazed yeah. And like becoming a teacher of his people. I am super excited for that day to happen. Like right? Sazed's such a great character. Isn't he? He's he's one of the best, man. He is he's, one of the he, best. And here's here's where we get PJ's conspiracy theory, Corey. I still don't trust him. I don't know why. Wild. Okay. 
I don't know why there's just, he's just too, he's too perfect. He's too likable. Okay. I don't know. I'm just expecting to get burned. So I want to like prep myself. So Kel uses this information to formulate a plan to tackle all the soothing stations at once. And the timing there will be critical. It appears to be critical as he's thinking about it and like trying to pull off this. It's kind of, this is an odd point, but it, it feels very heisty again. Like what's interesting through, like we've lost the heist a little bit as we move through the story. That's intentional. Like we've, it's, it's been broken up over time. It's failed at least twice. And so they've had to like reformulate entirely, but this feels as though again, replanning for the heist, replanning for some heist that like not everyone's aware of. There's, there's this kind of secret thing going in, but I don't think it's even, I don't think it's even like re preparing for the heist or like reapproaching it that way. Last week we, had the the revelation from a lot of the members of this team that that's not what this is about anymore. That was right. never what this was actually about. So I think yeah. this is this is the reapproach to the plan without approaching it like a heist anymore. That's a good call. That's a good call. You're definitely yes. We've we've given up. We've almost given up the heist in favor of a coup. If that makes sense. Like it's it basically That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Checks out. Checks out. But Doxin is in charge of It's a disaster waiting to happen. Getting a bunch of thieving crews to attack like what 35 soothing stations at the same time? With four or five Alamancers apiece. Yeah. If that I, I think it says there's three. Oh, oh, oh I thought you meant on the thieving. Seeker. Oh, yeah. Not the thieving crew is fucking nothing. But like it also it, this this section also makes clear that like Alamancy is fairly rare. So, yeah. it's crazy to have like 131 folks that are all Alamancers. Absurd. It's really absurd is what it is. And trying to coordinate that that much at once because you have to be perfect. In order for this to go well, you have to be perfect. You can't let anybody ex- escape. PJ, I am perfect. Just the one you're not. I am. No. What? You could improve. How dare you? Ag- agreed, though. Like it has to be. It 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 has to be a perfect moment, perfect presentation in order to like make the group be able to pull it off. Yeah. Like how how are you gonna do that with these fuck ups? So, uh, moving on, Sazed tells Kelsier the story of the Bennett people, right? The Bennett people are cartographer, cartographers of the Southern Island and a lot of Scadriel, the planet, the the continent and whatnot that we exist on. In, in an attempt to kind of like he – this is being pitched from Sazed to Kelsier. He asked for it to convince him to convert to a religion and it's one that deals in like peace and harmony in a big way through the pursuit of knowledge. But it's his asking after that, after like – trying to pick apart this religion about the Vala that I think is a little bit more interesting. That of when the folks are kind of made martyrs, squashed, and that they're, they're at the weakest, how they fought back against something else. What do you think Kelsier is seeking here through discussing religion in this way with Sazed and also like wanting to be presented with a religion from Sazed? So I think wanting to be presented with a religion was a front. I think this was like a pump up playlist for for Kelsier. Like 
we would we would put together playlists together for swim meets. Right. Do you remember that? Yep. Like we very very carefully curate songs that were upbeat. Metallica, Billy Talent, Some Forty One. Yeah, exactly. Shit like that. And I think this was Kelsier basically asking for inspiration, asking for a playlist, a song. He was asking for a song to get him hyped up for what he was doing. Because he, I don't think he really cared about the the one that Sazed mentioned. He just wanted the one that he explicitly asked for later. But he was open to like listening to something else, so that's why like I want to bring that up is just because he like he yeah. asked he asked like a blanket statement to like prompt Sazed to that's... deliver something. But I'm yeah. sure he's genuinely interested in it, yeah. and maybe something new will like stick in his mind, and maybe it'll be relevant. But I think primarily he just wanted to hear this underdog story. And to hear this story of these people that were able to persevere even though they didn't have a whole lot going for them. It is wild and correct that you verified this section is my favorite and the reason that we're talking about this because it is so accurate. And I think that that's part of this right here, right? We, like we get we get the dissection of two religions in quote inside of the same section and someone else's perspective on them. And I think that's so interesting because people have different perspectives on religion all the time. Like everyone comes to a, a religion or a, an ideology armed very differently. And I think that's so much it, – it is such – it's such a weird thing, but it's a real thing to evaluate religions in the way that like Kelsier does or like Vin does when she's presented with religions. And this is just – it is – character philosophical porn like that's all this is but it's brilliant it's brilliantly written it's deep it's fascinating it's well done and yeah it's interesting how he jumps from one to two especially with that southern kind of like the i really like the the story of the southern traders but and their their perspective on things so with that we move into chapter 30 we start off of course like we do every chapter with the logbook oh it's the logbook read the logbook again side note we've got a lot of compliments in reading the logbook week to week yeah so we're gonna keep doing even it. though i like make fun of it all the time yeah but people are like that's a good guidepost because i don't remember the book fully and so they're like oh okay. shit the logbook Fair is a good way to like remember where we're at so here we are chapter 30 most of the terrorismen are not as bad as Rashik. However, I can see they believe him to an extent. These are simple men, not philosophers or scholars. And they don't understand that their own prophecies say the Hero of Ages will be an outsider. They only see what Rashik points to. They are ostensibly superior people and should be dominant rather than subservient. Before such passion and hatred... Even good men can be deceived. A, this is my favorite. This is the best written logbook chapter, language-wise, of them all. I think, so far. It is It is clever. It is a little bit witty inside of the word ruler. But it's also, mm -hmm. it's an observation of reality. Right. 
He's talking a there, lot about Rashik and like Rashik and the terrorist people. What what are your thoughts there? So my thought here is really to do with uh, perspective, and I guess the the manipulation of truth. Like, is the term domination attributed by the Lord Ruler, or is that used by Rashik? Because I could see it as there's obviously a rift between the two of them that's growing and growing and growing. And I could see dominant being a term that's being attributed to Rashik by the Lord Ruler, like to Rashik's speeches and to his like thoughts by the Lord Ruler to try to justify to himself his his attitude you know like it, it's sort of a justifying of his hostility towards rashik yeah he's trying to figure it out he's trying to suss it out especially given what we were given previously right which is like the end of the logbook collectively mm-hmm. in order it is yeah he's i don't working know hard to figure out rashik and the terrorist he's working hard to figure out rashik yes but i think he has he's predisposed to believe that rashik is being hostile and malicious towards him in a in like a, on a mm-hmm. personal level and i'm wondering if him like attributing this sort of dominance rhetoric to rashik as as a justification as opposed to just we're a strong people we should we should be this strong people like i i could see i could see that being the rhetoric that's actually being presented and the Lord Ruler, whatever his name is, we don't know, because he's not the Lord Ruler yet, but for simplicity, we'll call him the Lord Ruler. Him taking that and twisting it a little bit and making it more hostile towards him as a means of justifying his dis- like his disdain for Rashik, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Makes total sense. What's wild to me, I've I've read meditations many times. This reads this logbook reads like meditations, but yes. with like a weird future aiming sense to it. So it's it's also like driving a plot beat, right? That's exactly what I was thinking about yesterday when I was going through these notes and going through these logbooks. Like this reads very similarly. Like these are like true, like and especially given the comparison to Marcus Aurelius, like it it there's this stark similarity, especially when he's talking about wars, war things like war moments. This feels like it's pulled there less less when he's talking about some other things of like comparing like some some like stoic philosophy bits. But when he's specifically journaling about like things that might happen or like things that he worries about or stuff like that. That feels like Rashik's journal. Or sorry, excuse me, the Lord Ruler's journal about Rashik. Yeah, with Rashik. Yeah, for sure. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. No, I got you. Vin, though, at the beginning of this chapter, finds herself at another ball at Keep Venture. Chandelariel is missing, of course, but the total number of partygoers has increased dramatically. We come to understand this as this thing of this being the final ball. This is where everything's sealed. So that's why everyone's here. But she is treated very much like a leper for the first time since the beginning. And, like, the beginning, it made sense. But here she feels offended and i think it's really sad to see this kind of like unwinding 
of growth for Vin. She's she's still on the positive side of this equation, but to see her treated poorly here really kind of hurts in in a foundational way to me as a for yeah. her as a character. Yeah. This is clearly the progression of the last interaction with Shan, mm-hmm. which was very hostile and very not not hostile, very dismissive and cold. But even with this context, I can't quite understand why we, why she was treated with such such an extremity of coldness from Shan, unless she knew something more about Vin, which I don't think is the case. Like she obviously knows potentially that she's a spy from another house. Maybe that's the reason. But even then, I feel like it would make more sense to allow her to be around and play nice like there's there's no strategic benefit i feel like to to just shutting her out like that so and, and this this highlights that a little bit like I, I i still don't get it i've i've read this shan section a number of different ways and i i agree with your primary reading having writing through read through it three times now <clears throat> the way that i i try to think about this is if you if we think about it from shan's perspective she actually doesn't want to encourage a fight with Vin, right? She actually has removed herself from even trying to fight with Vin. Vin only gets involved because she wants to get involved with Ellen. Like she, that's, that's why she's here, right? So Shan actually took the information that she got appropriately and then removed herself from Vin and in turn had no plans to like kill Vin or do anything bad against Vin because she was just like, she was a cog in the in the machine and so this this interaction that we get of course between shan and vin when when they're fighting is misborn versus misborn is really interesting because shan never predicted it or even thought that it would ever become a thing also i don't think she acted on really she didn't really encourage the direct conflict between the two of them that much like she was she was abrasive she was aggressive she's not a great person but it's it's interesting to think about the fact that like her plan was to take out Ellen, which is why we we have the conflict that we get. But at the same time, Shan was mean to Vin, but never never expected to be pushed back against so hard to the point of death. You know, right. like it's it's a weird it's a weird thing. The more that I've thought about it, I like it, but like this is unexpected. This is more unexpected for Shan than it is for yeah Ellen yeah. That's Vin. totally fair. Totally fair. That was a lot, but like I fucking that was, thought about that this was a lot. lot. I've I've thought about this yeah. a lot. This is one of the, this is one of those moments that sticks with me out of this novel. I often I often talk about Mistborn. And I'm like I love I love Mistborn. Compared to Red Rising, it feels like it's missing some action in places. Except for it isn't. I fucking realize that I'm so wrong. This has so much action peppered through each like hundred pages ish. We get like a twenty page action scene, and by God, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm aware I'm wrong. But we learned, of course, the reason that we've chatted about a little bit here. This is to be the final ball where alliances are solidified. And we see Vin again being alienated from these groups for that reason. Because Renew is not the biggest house at, at the party. What cuts even worse, though, of course, are Ellen's words. And when that emotional breakup and relationship ending conversation happens dude this passion's 
This passage sucked. Sucks. It hurts. It really sucked. What sucked even more, though, was listening to it on audiobook. Mm-hmm. Like, Michael Kramer's this was delivery done, is so, so fucking good. So hurtful. Directly painful and hurtful. Like, it was so pained. And in such, like, such a perfect way, you know? Like, mm-hmm. we we got to hear Vin be broken. Like, truly fucking broken as Ellen is walking away. Just fuck. We we used to, if you haven't listened to, if you haven't read Red Rising and therefore haven't listened to that. us talk about Red Rising, first of all, do that. Absolutely do that. But we fawn over Tim Gerard Reynolds and the way that he portrays the first few books of Red Rising. This rivals that. Michael Kramer... Eyes. There are only three voice actors that I really love that I've heard. I, I should say between all of the all of the things that I've listened to as audiobooks, Michael Kramer is one of them, which is Mistborn here. Mm. And he he fucking destroys the emotional resonance inside of this arc. Like it is night and day, man. It is crazy. Yeah. I will Michael's say, arc. I will say, as a disclaimer for my like, what would you call it? bias no not bias like my my approval of this my i'm giving my stamp of approval there's a word for it i can't remember i can't think of it right now but my my giving my stamp of of approval on this is based on the fact that like i listened to this book entirely fully entirely 100 percent of the time i have not listened to it not at 2x speed because, like, it's it's slow enough at two x speed to fully comprehend and see it as like a converse, conversational speed. Kramer is a which slow seems odd. talker, and okay. I, I like I like his narration style. But I agree with you. That's actually why I, at the very first time, like when I was reading through things, I increased to one point two because I think it still gets across the performance, but it isn't overbearing. But two is fine. Read it as you want. I mean, at two x, the performance stance. <laughs> Yeah, so. I, I think that's what's wild about it. Like, that's what's crazy about the mm. way that he really builds out this world and this character. And and as such, his his emotion that comes through Ellen here is fucking awful. Like, it is painful to witness this. Necessarily so, though. Right. We, like, we get why, but. Yeah, it's just it just sucks. <laughs> sucks especially given what we learn later which is that this was intentionally meant to be that way to try to get her out of the city so like given the context we know that it's not she understands it as like you don't love me anymore kind of and that's like 90 percent of her thought process she's got the little conspiracy bit where she's like i think he might be saying that just to say it because he's worried which she's right on as we learn from his perspective but right now this just abrasive speech cuts deep dude this is worse this is the worst version of a breakup that i've ever seen put into text form i fuck all right so of course reen's whispers also return in tandem with with the emotionality of the section right because she's she's deep she's dark she's in this recessive state 
and those early insecurities that we're reminded of from the beginning of novel return to bury her in those feelings. And my fucking God, Reen sucks, right? Like Reen sucks. And he is like this interesting in her perspective, like embodiment of evil and ruin and awfulness. So I think it's a little bit different than that. I don't think it's necessarily evil or ruin or anything because ultimately like this is her, this is in her head and she's attributing these thoughts to him. But I appreciate this presence cropping up again. Like it is an indication of her headspace and like it, it, simultaneously gives us more insight into her her familial relationship with Vin in general, but more directly, it tells us that she is questioning herself and she is being down on herself and she is beating herself up. She's attributing entirely her negative thoughts about herself to somebody else. And Calling it an external force, but really what it is, is her beating the shit out of herself. Right, right. It's it's this insecurity manifest, right? Yeah. Like, it is. Exactly. Like, we all, we all like, we'll, we'll do something and we'll be like, that's not that good. Like, it's never going to be good. No one's going to like it. And this is that made tenfold from someone's insecurity standpoint, but also, like, yeah. it's a very real perspective on those insecurities made manifest. I think one of the funnest, the most fun parts of this chapter is Cliss's reveal, right? Oh, we, we talked shit. a lot over the last couple of weeks talking about Cliss and like some of the, shit. some of the things. And I like made a big deal out of her being like this, this big, like fucking gossip. And she has this fucking heel turn, which is intense. And she makes the perfect informant. We've been given the picture of informants from Kelsier with with the example of Hoyd and himself. But then given like Cliss and like her real like kind of like mercenary-esque buy me off kind of flaunty taunty thing. It, it's yeah. really it's really fun. But she's got a real venom to her when she's actually mm-hmm. talking like a real person, which is a complete switch. It 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 feels like the Wicked Witch of the West was just revealed and and previously she'd be talking like the fucking scarecrow which is like really nice and sweet and 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 there and with it and kind of fun and then it gets boiled down to this really aggressive awfulness and it's it gives me the heebies like it gives me ooh <laughs> shakes this is one of those moments but of course not only is the plan she she reveals plot wise the plan to assassinate Ellen through Shan, through the gift, like to pay through like a fucking necklace, but also that Lloyd Straff himself believes this to be the move and paid for this to be the move planned for this. Yeah. Being an informant with the cover of being an insatiable gossip is so fucking good. And especially <laughs> because so she's on good. the other side, like kind of, yeah. you know, like, like oh, that's man. what makes it fucking perfect. And as far as we understand, she's not part of a major house, right? Right, right. That's why she has it. She's a minor house. Exactly. So the entire time I'm thinking about this, I'm like, how could she have not given something away? Like, how how could she not let something slip? And I'm like, oh, wait, she's not actually a gossip. 
Like that's not actually who she is. That's what she's playing. That's her, that's her role. Like that, that's her character. So like even, even after the reveal, it's ingrained in my head that she's this gossip that everybody's going to know about all of this shit. There's a lot of minutia here. That's just like instilled over the top of the story. And I love, I love your read. I love your read on Cliss because I totally agree with it. I think Cliss is a genius underrated character inside of this like arc that we get from the balls with. with yeah. Finn. Yeah. The fandom doesn't talk about her at all, but I fucking love well, You Cliff should is, talk about Cliss. Cliff. Cliff is my dog. Cliss. <laughs> Cliss is great. Cliss is great. But like not on our side, but like so well written, <laughs> geniusly presented. She's not against us. Like she's she's actually. She's I feel pro. like she's more on our side than many of the other noble people. Like she's she's yes she's like a mercenary basically. Yeah, boil like it down the to that. Which she recognizes that she's being soothed, right? Which is wild. So like yeah. she understands that like she's being emotionally manipulated and like leans into it a little bit, which is interesting too. She's like, she well, I know that you're pushing me. And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you the thing, but also I am pushing your button specifically yeah. with what I'm saying. She's got this like flirty attitude that like yeah, it, very flirty. Flirty is a good way to put it. But at the same time, she's not against us. She's she's a neutral party. Right. She is a party for hire. She's a mercenary for in- information. Right. Yeah. As far as Straff goes, though, like learning that he's in on this shit. Fuck that dude. Fuck like, Straff. Straff is such a piece of shit in this book. He's a giant dick. Man. He's an absolute giant dick. Straff sucks. He's just, Fuck he is the worst. Him. So, this, of course, like Cliss pushing on kind of this delicate nerve leans into like how she feels about Ellen and kind of like really exposes it this final moment of her revealing internally and externally that the word that she wants to use is love. She loves Ellen. And and Vin has not been expressive from the beginning of the book and has become more expressive as she's become more of a of a person and understanding emotions and kind of her emotionality has grown. But she loves Ellen. And so this is a big change. This is a big switch. This of course leads into this epic confrontation. So we go from this moment of heightened emotional reality into a physical conflict. And I think that combination is really kind of like a sweet and sour, delicious mix here. But Vin then, of course, confronts this assassination party and takes out a couple of thugs, some pewter pewter people, and some coin shots, even throwing one off the fucking building. I left out loud. This is this is cinematically perfect. This is a humorous movie that you can imagine like someone being thrown off and you get you get the Wilhelm scream, for instance, and like this is that this moment is where of, that like, would live. <laughs> or like through glass or whatever. It's it this again, said it before. This is my favorite section of the entire fucking book. Like I I really like what comes next. I'm not gonna lie. But I, I adore this section. Yeah, there's really something like fascinatingly satisfying about the way that Branderson writes action sequences. True. Yeah, we've discussed it before. We've talked about this. It's it's entirely devoid of anything flowery, and it's very matter of fact. It's like a screenplay. 
to be honest. Like it's very clean because you have yeah. to you have to like try to make it work without you know adding right. context. Exactly, and for the most part, even though we're in the perspective of the hero of the action sequence, for the most part, like it's devoid of any in internal thoughts, any any inner monologue, which is interesting and kind of cool. Like this is a stark contrast to Pierce Brown in the way that he writes action sequences. I was and like fight afraid of that for you, if that makes sense. Like I was almost afraid of the contrast between writers here for you. Uh, I love it because it's so aggressive. It's so different stylistically. Like Blake Crouch to Pierce Brown to this. Like all three of them write entirely different. It's so, so it's so different. And while I appreciate the flourish and the emotion that's captured by Pierce Brown in the way that he writes like razor battles. This, I think I resonate more with interest. The very, the very structured and rigid, not, not structured, but the rigid matter of factness and of progression of, 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 of an action sequence. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like it, every movement is very carefully dialogued or like, not dialogue. I just said dilated. Um, like it's it's just like it's right there and it's precise. You know, it's got that catalogs. This is what I was thinking of. It, it's it's a yeah. catalog. It is it is a progression that is just vomited up for us. And it, I don't know. I don't know why, but I love the way that this is written. I I think that's definitely one of Brandon Sanderson's like traits mm-hmm. that I adore as well. So I agree with you there. That makes sense. Yeah. Me. And yeah. like, I I don't know. I like both. I really do. Right. I love right. the way that it's, Pierce it's not Brown even writes. that one's better than the other. Like it's just like they're they're, they're just different. very different. And yeah, this is where like writing and like reading gets really fun is when like you have these completely different ways of presenting the same kind of thing, and language just has this complexity to it. And that's why I'm really glad that we got to do these kind of back to back because they are so wildly different as far as stories go. In a bunch of ways. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, of course, we have to talk about the end of this, which is kind of the rest of the action scene that we led into here. It's this epic confrontation. We've, we've already dealt with most of the other people, including an additional Mistborn. But she she downs that one, and then she proceeds to duel Sean Alariel, and it's a really clever use of ATM, right? Like the idea of like burning out an image to get an idea of where they're going to be and then receding it and then reburning it so that she can like outpace where fucking Shan is inside the sequence. She murders her with a broken arrow that's being shot at her. She breaks it in half and stabs her once, stabs her again. And that that alone is such a visual It's clean, man. It's like clinical. it's a really clean fight. Dude puts on a clinic. And, like, this is something that is so... I'm going to talk about this later. I know I am. Like, the end of this section where we get... Oh, God. Waylon? Yeah, Waylon. Yep. Waylon. We get his perspective. Like, this book is written so well to be adapted to TV, to, to a movie, to something. Like... Th- these fight sequences are written like uh, choreography notes almost. 
and it, it is exactly like the way this is written is exactly how I would expect it to be portrayed on film. Perfect. Like Brandon yeah. Sanderson is is such a good and I don't think that he's I think people are aware of this or might not be like aware of exactly what it is. But Brandon Sanderson is actually such a good writer for film. He is a screenwriter without knowing it. A lot yeah. of that is because he doesn't use like a lot of prose flourishes and things like that. Like what he does is he writes prose almost under the guise of screenwriting, but he writes it's it's just so interesting. It's so different. And that's why I really enjoy Brandon Sanderson's writing. I, I love a number of writers. Brandon Sanderson is one of the most unique writers out there where he writes in this very flat style. And it being flat is a good thing in his circumstance. Flat feels like a negative connotation, but it is. It, I mean, it's a praise for what he's doing. Right. This is a perfect scene. Like this is. Yeah. Perfect. The, what it needs or, or not what it needs, but what it would what I would imagine to do myself is add a little bit more flourish color metaphor simile here. And he is just so he's clinical, I think, is is the way that we describe it. Clinical. Clinical goes through these things so like he is just boom, 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 action, action, action. It's it's fantastic. And I, I truly think fantastic in both the. The sense of like something that is incredible, something that is well executed, something that is magnificent and magical. That sense of fantastic. Also, it is perfect. It's well executed. It's brilliantly (laughs) written. Okay, we've got one more little point here before we move into chapter 31. Of course, we learn that she's this misborn and we, we down... It's a little ATM bead, and we we get this fight back and forth, of which we've we've talked about is absolutely brilliant. We've got the ATM turning on and off to like absolutely masquerade that and like make it this big thing. But Shan at the very end of this dies, is murdered by Vin, absolutely destroyed. Vin is dealing with like six Alamancers at once, and murder. Well, I don't think it's murder. It's not. It's not murder. You're right. You're right. But she's. <laughs> I, I'm saying murder is like a positive for Vin. Like it's a it's a mm. Vin positive thing. But she's destroyed, like she is killed by Vin in a way that is so upsetting for Shan, but also great for us <laughs> as people. So I I love I love this little bit. This whole thing's brutal. And I think Vin I think I appreciate more more so now that we didn't get like we got a little bit of inner monologue from Vin here. In these like one-on-one, very intricate battle sequences, as opposed to the the previous like what four-on-one, five-on-one, six-on-one, whatever it is, yeah. Like in those situ- situations, we get the just actions being taken because that's kind of how you have to do it. But with this one-on-one, Mistborn v. Mistborn, you need the inner monologue. You need the thoughts of. Hey, she's doing this. Here are my options. Here are my choices. It plays like a fighting game, like a, like it a really fucking Mortal Kombat. Does right? right? Yeah, it really like, does. Yeah, God, it's so fucking good, dude. Yeah, back down square, back down square, back forward square, back forward triangle. Like y- y- you get that feeling here. You do. You do. It's astonishing. How invested I got 
in these sequences. Right. Man, I just I just loved it. And I think what has Brandon Sanderson written before this book? Anything? So this is his eighth novel that he's written himself. He wrote before this his first published novel is a book called uh, Elantris, which we will eventually get to inside of our Cosmere. I think we're going to do the whole Cosmere over the course of time, but um, interrupt it with some other things. You're assuming Just, that we'll be friends for more than like a year after this. Fuck you. So we'll continue to do the Cosmere over time. But Elantris is a one-off novel, and that was that was the only thing published before this. This novel is what convinced Robert Jordan's wife. I can't remember her name, unfortunately. I'm sorry, folks at home. She was his editor. She she is an editor, so she was so there with it. She also edited like Ender's Game, for instance. She's she is instrumental oh, shit. in Orson Scott Card's thing. Looked up her name. Harriet McDougal is her name, but Harry Harriet 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 Harriet, Harriet McDougal. Okay. But she is she's got a wild, wild, an incredible career. But she um, edited the Wheel of Time under Robert Jordan, and she read Mistborn and the obituary that Brent Sanderson wrote for Robert Jordan when he passed away, and that's why she chose him is because of style of writing with Mistborn and the obituary of like his appreciation for him. That's awesome. So yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. We move in to chapter 31, which again, I think I mentioned this many times this week at this point, but this is my favorite chunk of chapters from Sanderson and I Branderson and really love that we call him Branderson as well. I just, I get a kick out of the whole thing. So starting with the log book here, other men worry whether or not they will be remembered. I have no such fears. Even disregarding the terrorist prophecies, I have brought such chaos, conflict, and hope to this world that there is little chance that I will be forgotten. I worry about what they will say to me. Historians can make what they wish of the past. In a thousand years' time, will I be remembered as the man who protected mankind from a powerful evil, or will I be remembered as a tyrant who arrogantly tried to make himself a legend? This is such yeah. a good logbook chapter. For it is. Reasons. It's all about legacy. It's all about how people remember things. What do you think? But it's also a point that I brought up earlier in this episode in that. Yeah, you're right. What? Yeah, I just said fuck you. But yeah. You're well, right. I mean, that's fair in general. But this brings into question this guy's motivations. Like, Lord Ruler, sure. I feel like that entity is entirely different than who we're reading right now. You know? Like, the entity of the Lord Ruler is not the same as the person that will eventually become the Lord Ruler. Yeah, that tracks. And it, it feels, it, it felt so very different. And it felt so much like this person is dealing with this sense of nobility and duty and... That gets undermined here. Like I mentioned, like at the beginning of this episode was this point makes me question his actual motivations, whether or not just just the fact that he knows that he could be corrupted and imbued with an immense power makes me question his motivation entirely because because he knows that's a possibility. It right. brings it 
the rest of it in the question. Yeah, it is. I I think in combination with all the like downpour that we got from Vin, this small section of which exists between the end that we read with Vin and the prior kind of journal entries that we had. So like we have to kind of reconstruct this one around. This section is fascinating because it really kind of Mm. paints this interesting picture of who the Lord ruler was before. And also like not only how he, how he thinks he is perceived, but also how he thinks he will be perceived down the line, which is again, a very heavy meditations, Marcus Aurelius thing, right? Which is like, your perception or people's perception of you should matter less than what you actually have done. But he's still he of course the Lord Rulers caught up in like thinking about it and like trying to contemplate the eventuality of, of what he will become after the well of ascension. And it's it's just such an interesting little bit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So we cut from there to the fun of clubs this place in some jesting at Dachshund. We, we we cut to like another optimistic fun scene that Brandon destroys. Like this is his joy. This is his place. You can tell that he loves writing these happy bar scenes more than he likes anything else. But it's also at Dachshund's expense. Like it's kind of a fun like little bit joke before Vin barges in from her absolute destruction of all of these mistings and mistborns. With her news that she just killed Lario, huge, huge deal. Shannon Lario is dead. I have said before, I love how warm this is and optimistic it is. And the turn that we get when she enters is interesting, even with Kelsier's perspective about him that she's shocked at what she managed to achieve. Yeah. So first and foremost, this sort of banter back and forth between the guys. This reminds me perfectly of when we used to live together. True. Yeah. Like all, all of the, all of us Dudes get home from work. We all yeah. have a chat. Yeah, exactly. Just bullshitting. It was great. It was, it was so much fun. Like sitting around the campfire, having a chat and this yeah. is so good. And then we get it interrupted by like Vin really killing the standard in a lot of ways. Like who? Yeah. Vin is abrasive. Yeah, and versus the rest of the scene, for sure. Yeah, But like even without the context of what's been happening right now, she's an abrasive person, and right now she is unhinged to the point where she is brutally honest. And that's, I think, necessary for everybody. Like They need to hear this sort of outburst from her about them being like basically noblemen without titles. And hear this perspective of you don't know what it means to be Ska. And we know for a fact that there are at least a few of them that do. Like Doxin, was it Doxin? Is like his history was as a plantation Ska. Yeah. So I think for those that didn't ever experience that, that stings a little bit and maybe gives them something to think about. But for those that did, like Doxin, and I really don't know who else, because we haven't had that much experience on their backstory, but for Doxin specifically, it probably sings also, but also probably brings more directly into focus why he's here and what his plan is and what his goal is. 
because it's so easy to fall into the comfort of whatever situation that you're in, if it's better than what you were in before. Right. So stay hungry, I guess is the, is the best way to sum that up. That's such a good way to put it because like, I think in a lot of ways it, it, it takes into consideration like other theming crews, other ways that like people have thought about these things inside of the world. But at the same time, it, it keeps our characters focused in a real heavy way to like stay hungry, stay humble, get down. Yeah. You know, it, exactly. it just it feels right. And I don't disagree with you at all there. We, we of course need to also evaluate the same like emotional precedent that we're talking about with Vin. It's important to remember that she's like a 16 or 17 year old kid, right? Like between like the passage of time that we've experienced over the course of the story, we're eight months in, she's 16 or 17 at this point. And her emotional intelligence and just general intellect is is very interesting and makes her feel a little bit older than she actually is. When Kelsier comes to her on the roof after her outburst that happens, it's that outburst is shocking, but real, and it makes a lot of sense. And it's it's mm-hmm. fundamentally important, especially for Kelsier to hear this conversation we debated at length about the the like merits and not merits of the nobleman argument, right? Like you don't kill the nobleman. Not all of them. There there are people that are bad, but not all of them are bad. And right. this this argument ultimately has a great tone because of the way that Kelsier kind of ingests that information and then digests that out outward to us as as the listener. As though it's something that they did wrong. It, it feels like, you know, when like a sibling knows or like a parent knows that they fucked up with something. I don't know if you've ever had the experience I have, but like when a parent knows that's like, okay, I did most of that right, but I fucked this bit up and I'm telling you because I want to make sure that you don't take the wrong message from what I did or said. It feels like that. It's not, I mean, reprimand. It's addressing the problem. What like Kelsey is trying to react to here is a lot of his comments. A lot of his commentary has been so impactful in the way that Vince thought about things. And Vin feels like she hasn't been heard. She's like half voiced a lot of these opinions, but now now it's full bore, how fucking dare you kind of a conversation. And I think it's an important mm-hmm. one to have. I'm glad that it happens, of course. She's she's in such a tight spot, right? She's doing what's right with the parts that she wants to kind of like execute on and pull the trigger on. And also, at the same time, because she wants to do these things that are semi-pro nobleman, she's pushing away her friends, which is a difficult thing for her to accept and acknowledge as an idea. But I think that this is yeah. one of the most emotionally empowering chapters or powerful chapters for Vin. We get deep understanding of where Vin is coming from inside of the situation. And yeah. like, I've, like I've said before, chapter 31 is the chapter for me. Like this is right. this is my chapter emotionally. It's just resonant yeah. throughout. We move, of course, from this to how Vin is sure that the Inquisitors are tracking them. She comes to this realization in this emotional moment. She's sitting there crying with Kelsey on, on top of the roof and, and talking about a lot of these very emotional things. But she also has this very honest conversation with Kelsey about bronze and copper. And she thinks that the reason that the Inquisitors were aware is because they were able to pierce copper clouds. So it's a powerful assertion because... Kelsier 
doesn't fully buy it. He he does not believe that it can be pierced. He's tried. He's spent hours and hours and hours focusing individually to try to pierce a copper cloud. So it's it's an interesting kind of standing statement for her right now and what's going on power wise. Yeah. Emotionally, this is a really powerful section. Yes. We get backstory on Vin and like her actual feelings and like who she is as a person, what she wrestles with. But we get a further sense of inner personality between Vin and Kelsier and further understanding that they're peers as opposed to teacher pupil, you know, like this is more progression in that front, which is cool to see. Yeah. It's just such, this is again, we've talked about it. We've said it. The reason that this is my favorite is because it it hits all these different notes, right? It's, it's, it's a highlight on top of the entire story of like, these are the things we should really care about. And I, I think that we, I think that not we, but I think that a lot of people do disservice to the reason that they love Vin because they think about like where she came from, where she goes. But this is, this is the depth of emotional understanding that she finally has and she reveals and she exposes. And this is just so important. And her honesty with Kelsier is, is revelatory in a number of ways, including in this physical manifestation of her understanding of powers and ability in which she's so honest that Kelsier's like, no Alamancer can do that. You're just stronger than everyone else. Like, you have something that no one else has. Because has. I can't do that to you, but you can do it to me. So, what the fuck does that mean? It's just right. such an interesting, powerful moment for Vin. But also, we we can assume via that, like, that the Inquisitors follow the same path, and they might have similar power levels, so... I don't know if we can assume anything about the Inquisitors. You just don't assume. You assume everything no. and nothing at the same time. I assume everything is fucking with us. PJ, we're about to talk about trust. We're not. In Nobody bit, trusts anything. Like, Nobody should trust anything. <laughs> Fuck trust. We cut from there, of course, from this conversation to that of Elland, right? And the conversation that goes on with Elland. And Ellen's conversation is fascinating, especially about his reveal of like understanding Club's shop after tracking Vin and surmises what Vin could really be up to. This is very interesting considering our limited POV with Ellen so far. I think the biggest part about this is we really understand what kind of person Ellen really is. Trust is something that you mentioned and it's something that I have a hard time doing for a lot of characters in these books. I I have a hard time trusting characters like this because it it just feels so ripe for the possibility of corruption Hmm. and heel turns, you know? Sure. Yeah. Like I, I could have absolutely believed that Ellen was some sort of obligator in disguise or whatever, like just waiting to pounce, understanding entirely what Vin was from the beginning and just waiting to pounce. Even if it wasn't like knowing that she was a ska, but knowing that she was doing like conducting some sort of manipulation. Like I could have absolutely believed that that was him. And finally we're starting to see because we get his perspective 
we get to see what he's actually thinking and really get to realize that he's being genuine. Right. I don't know. Especially compared to Josties, right? Like Josties is this like wild other side of the Nolan equation. And yeah, if we want to put it into the terms that we've brought up before, we, we've brought up action versus thought yep. before. And there's kind of a couple steps between there. Like there's, there's action and then there's actually being true to those thoughts. Consideration. Like, Right. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's the right way to put it. When we, is that here where, where Ellen learns that Vin is probably a part of a thieving crew? Potentially. Yes. That that is here. Yep. Right. Like his, his inner monologue isn't anything of horror. He's not upset by the idea that this dirty, ska thieving thieving crew was trying to infiltrate him it was one of awe and like not not pride not what's the right way to put that like it's 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 awe 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 i think is right i think that's yeah. the right way to put it like he he's not upset with her at all he just wants to learn more and uses it as a point of um, conviction to understand that the ska are so similar to them and very potentially the same species with the same capacity to like to to learn as the noble people that is not the pervasive understanding of the ska in modern society like he's using this as a as a point of education and revelation that's super cool to see dude you killed it i'm not gonna i don't have anything further to expound upon that i think you it is it is such a unique moment again we've talked about it before this is why i love this section this is why this is why i settled on being willing to do this book for the book series is like it's this kind of moment we've we've been building to this these emotional and philosophical revelations and now they're exposed. Like now they're the raw roots of everything. And I'm so glad that you keyed into that. So in a similar way, Josties is kind of an odd guy, right? Especially <laughs> kind of the fun that like Ellen bounces about his feelings with Vane. And he's he's got this kind of like interplay back and forth. He's a strange backboard if we want to think about like basketball, right? Like bouncing it off and like bouncing it off the ground, whatever. It gives us insight though into the fact that Ellen didn't really want to break things off with the Vin and really does still like her. He wanted to do it for her protection, of course. What do you, what's your read here? We, we talked a little bit about some of the other things, but what's your quick read? We're able at this point, I think if we wanted to, to call Ellen our boy. Literate scamp. Yeah, he's our literate scamp, he, our well, boy. He's, yeah. he's our literate, he's our literate little scamp. That's true, but... We've been calling the Lord Ruler our boy for a while now. <laughs> and I feel like Lord Ruler Just hasn't deserved ones. it. He hasn't deserved it. Ellen has, I think, at this point. And I'm going to eat my fucking words when we learn that he's a... He is the Lord Ruler, right? No, he's a fucking traitor, piece of shit, garbage, <laughs> human, whatever. 
Like, I'm sure I'll eat my words, but for now, we can call him our boy and I'll be okay with it. Love that. Love that for you. But the very end of this, we we talked about it a little bit earlier, but like Straff, Lord Straff Venture fucking sucks. He is one of the yeah. worst people that I've read in a novel, period. He is a vile person of whom dislikes other people and even his own son. I think that's what makes him so aggressive here is his dislike and like disloyalty even to his son is aggressive and almost like anti-parental in a weird way. Fuck him. But the end of the section, of course, it appears Ellen has worked out most everything except for the fact that Vin could be the Mistborn. But he is pretty sure about the even crew, about character traits, about other things. So what what's your read on the end of that section? I mean, Straff is like, yeah, he sucks. He's, he's from our perspective, an evil dude. But at his core, he is doing what is best for his house. And yeah, it's fucking cold and horrible to like cut out your own son if it means strengthening your house. But if your entire motivation is your house, then I don't know. Fuck him. For sure. Fuck Lord Straff. He's a piece of shit. Put that man in the dumpster. No one likes him. Anyway, with that, we move into chapter 32 here, our last chapter of the week. Leading it off here, of course, is our logbook section. Though many terracemen express a resentment of Kalenium, there is also envy. I've heard the Pacmen speak in wonder of the Kaleni cathedrals, and with their amazing stained glass windows and broad halls, they also seem very fond of our fashion. Back in the cities, I saw that many young terracemen traveled in their furs and skins from for well-trained, well-tailored gentleman suits. This is interesting. It provides some context of Colenium. It provides some context of the way that people dressed at the time. It's fashion, baby. Who doesn't want a dope suit, man? But, like, just the idea of a couple dudes with just ridiculous, like, earrings. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, just, just... I don't know, man. Like, it is the clash of two, like, of punk. Like, it is punk suits, kind of. Yeah. Fair Kimmy and, like, the whole Terraceman culture. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it made me think of the, God, those black skinny, skinny ties that you had. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the Regency ties that had the word on them, right? Like, punk. Yeah. What was the other one? It was it was punk and then rebel, I think. Something. No, it was something. It was something more. It was a little bit more driven. Was it driven? driven? It was driven. It was driven. It was yep. driven. Yep. Yeah. Cool. That's what I thought of reading through this. Like, just something a little bit more. Just a little bit of a twist on on modern classiness. Yeah. I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we move from this conversation about classiness and being a classy person to a conversation with Spook, right? And I think it's a really endearing one. He's, he's just this very shy kid. He's the tin eye of the group. And he totally understands that she doesn't want to go out with him, which is a unique 
emotional experience that happens and you get it at certain points in your life and you're just like, ah, oh, we, we don't match. You don't think that I like you, et cetera. This is that for him. But it's such a simple thing and it's a nice touch inside of the story. It's it's just very gentle. It's kind of a, a whisper of of not romance, but of appreciation and and love and kind of that like ability to be able to discern relationships that you have with people like it's like you should be a friend not my girlfriend or not my boyfriend or whatever yeah but you can't choose who you love and some people don't deserve it it's kind of the end quote that that spook delivers as well as like or that vin says like yeah really appreciates him that quote from vin you can't choose who you love and some people don't deserve it i i would argue you could make a case that that quote is a theme for this book. Oh, entirely. Agreed. Hell yeah. It, I mean, it's an important lesson to take away in general for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, be in tune with your emotions, but also realize that sometimes those emotions will will drive you the wrong way. Sometimes they'll drive you the right way, but they'll leave other people kind of hurt in the process. Like, Emotions aren't rational, and they right. kind of suck sometimes. Yes. Um, I'd really like to avoid them as much as possible, but that's not possible. Like, this is not the way the Here's world like, works. If I could be a black hole, I'd be a black hole. I would. I'm not sure how I feel about Vin asking to keep the handkerchief. Hmm. Interesting. Like, I'd... It's I feel like, like there a was sentence. a... Con- yes, but... Like, I, I could completely understand her doing it. I could also completely understand her giving it back, but I felt like that was a point that was a little bit more glossed over than anything else, and it just felt not fleshed out enough to really like have have a real emotion emotional like connection to it. Like, so I don't fully disagree with you. What I want to paint is like a full picture here, right? So, what we move into after this is the picture of of. Vin finally getting a lesson on Tin, right, from Spook. As a sort of final bullet point on top of the eight basic elementic metals, this ends up being the final lesson, which is a discussion of, like, what you see versus what you don't see, right? And so I think, especially with the handkerchief, I think this ties in a little bit. I think it I think it pulls it back because Vin sees this as a proclamation of love, as a proclamation of, of things. But what she isn't seeing is is everything else around it with spook, which is like his, his life has been one where he's been distant from people and he hasn't been able to relate because he's from an odd part of the country and speaks a slightly odd language. And so like what, what's really important, I think with the, the spook versus Vin relationship here is, is recognizing that this, this lesson that we get about tin is directly relational to the lesson that spook is providing us on Vin's perspective. And I think that it is, wild and wide reaching and really cool but i think it's important to like read precisely between the lines like he wants you to here yeah i i I entirely agree with you i just i wish there was more yeah i agree with you i i wish there was a little bit more expounded upon sure like even if it was just internal monologue because we're in vin's perspective here yeah we could like we could have gotten we could have gotten a sentence of from Spook's POV. So yeah. right, and Spook is so 
cold about it. Not, not, not in a negative way, but in, in the way like, yeah, fine, whatever. Yeah. Keep it. I don't, I don't give a shit. I don't think like, he's that negative. Like, I don't think, I think but, he's more but like, he, keep, he doesn't, keep it, he keep it, you know, like kind of warm about it. Like just take it. That's he, I, I think he explicitly shrugs when he says, yeah, okay, whatever. But, but his also, I, I just want to clarify this. His, speaking style and conversational language is completely different from anyone else. So I, I it's think true. that like his, his like shrugging is we read it as aggressive or like dismissive, but I think, I think it's just his way of trying to relate emotion, you know, because of his yeah. language barrier. That's fair. I just, I wish we would have gotten more context from Vin's perspective of sure. why she wanted to keep it because I would see this as her wanting a tangible object to say like people care about you. I think that's what it is. I agree with you. I think that's what it yeah. is too, but I'd love that to be like, I, I think you could make a very touching monologue internally from Vince perspective about that. And instead this comes across as flat and a little bit dismissive. I don't know. It, it just felt like not an afterthought, but, was kind of there without it actually meaning a whole lot and yes like you and i are going through this at a fairly slow pace compared to what everyone else reads at so we can really dig into these like little aspects yeah and we can we can really determine like yeah that's probably what she was thinking and that was probably the intention but if i was breezing through this i don't think i'd put that much thought towards it yeah and i i just wish there was a little bit more care taken to expound upon it a little bit from vin's perspective that makes sense i'm i'm down with that i think i think that is it's a good read i think in this whole thing like you're not you're not recalibrating anything you're just recommending that like man it'd be like a sentence when you make the movie make this like feel feel that sentiment of the handkerchief and like her choosing to keep it like that's important knowing vin honestly knowing vin i would have seen it entirely in her monologue of her thinking about offering the handkerchief back but not wanting to give it up but yeah exactly you're 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 right on it that's that's entirely what i would think would be delivered as well so good I thought about giving it back, but but I don't want these feelings taken away. Right. Which is what we get a lot of in this section is like, I don't want to lose the thing that I have. It's our conversation when it says it earlier, right? Which is like, I am so lucky to have all of this, all of these things happen and I don't want to lose it. And that's so important to Vin's character right now. Right. Kelsey and Vin, of course, discuss Mare and kind of get into his side of the relationship with with someone else, which is interesting, especially composed versus the Ellen chapters. And it brings something into focus. PJ, it brings trust into focus, trusting your characters in text. It literally says, how dare you not trust someone's personal history? And PJ, fuck, who the fuck would trust? PJ says, fuck you. Fuck that. I have such a difficult time trusting Anyone, characters in ever. books like this. You, I don't know. Fuck you. <laughs> how, how dare you? How dare you? How dare you? It's something really important to bring into focus, though, of 
how can you trust people, especially when things go bad and you blame them for it? It's it's impossible, man. Mm-hmm. Like that's such a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you need an outside perspective in order to like forgive them. Right, right. And that's what makes this whole thing so interesting it's as far as like sharing gifts. It's very open from Kelsier's perspective and, and kind of an apology in a lot of ways. As we get through a little bit more of the chapter, we see kind of Kelsier's generosity and sort of this part of his personality that's trying to portray this forgiveness, this acceptance as genuine, right? So they head to the Ska houses of, of just random folks basically and visiting them, sharing great news and good news and they call him the Lord of Misting, and they give him all these fil- these other titles that don't matter to him, but matter to them as like a marketing, whatever. Like it's it's pervasive; it's part of the culture. But to them, in its own way, you know, this is like Jesus coming down and like hanging out in someone's house, right? Like this is this is that moment where he just steps into the temple and freaks everyone out. But he doesn't think of it as that way. He thinks of it very minorly. He's very low-key in the whole thing. He's just like, I am trying to distribute my appreciation and sentiment on as many people as possible and to be human and to ground myself in their humanity as well. So they're looking up to yeah. him, but he's also looking to them at the same time. Yeah. So I think in general, calling him the Lord of the Mists is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Like there, there is there is good and bad to it. Good, very clearly, it spreads information. It's pre- it spreads his myth, and to a certain point, like gives people hope, you know. But at the same time, this messiah complex that's being attributed to him, it means that. He has so much more responsibility personally than what he initially like signed up for. Yeah. There there are like it, it just splits his attention even more. Because on top of trying to accomplish his goal and accomplish what he's been setting out to do, he also has to do it in a way that keeps these ska people like satisfied. I don't know. Satisfied is the right word. Like you, you encapsulated it. I'm sure there's a more like elegant way to say that. There definitely are like touches and flourishes that people could add to like try to portray that. But dude, killed it. That's that's great, especially given that scene, given that context. Again, I've said it before. I'll say it again. This is my favorite week of the show. Like I'm, I'm very aware that this is what I wanted to focus on and talk about. Is the the episode before the Sander Lanch, as it's called. So this is this is an emotionality section that just rocks and makes everything else make sense. So in in that same regard, we, of course, go out to Marsh's soothing station. They're shocked, of course, to find this body when they arrive after leaving skinned entirely. It's head skull crashed together and absolutely smashed to a pulp blood everywhere. So much blood that they don't believe that could come from a single body. They quickly snatch Marsh's pile of notes that were clearly meant to be hidden in the leg of the table like they were doing previously uh, to exchange information with clubs and run away into the night. Our our note here is that, of course, from this point of view, as we've experienced it, the Marsh is dead. (laughs) Fuck, dude. Yeah. I was really getting to like him. 
I was really liking Marsh. And this is why I don't trust people. Well, that's interesting because this is... This is why I don't trust authors. Right. Yeah, right. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, he's abusing your emotions right now. I also don't trust their characters, but this is why I don't trust the authors yeah. themselves. God, I, I, I know, I, I think I made a joke about this earlier, but I focused in so hard on Marsh's and Kelsier's relationship because I think it's so important to, like, note all those different elements as we move through, as we think about, like, the the components of their relationship. And now, finally, it's all dissolved. They they came to terms with each other, like each other, and then Marsh is dead. He's gone. Smashed into a pulp. Like, that's... That's what fucks me up. Like the dude's head was just there, and and then not. I mean, it's there. It's ever like sprayed. A, a cosmic sense. It's there. <laughs> I'm I'm laughing, but I'm crying. Yeah, no, I, I feel that. I feel that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Marsh, of course, leaves this coterie of notes, and so we we work our way through that. It, it details an interesting question. There, there are a number of notes that he tries to make on the Inquisition, and he's kind of writing it down because he's afraid that he's going to be killed or hunted down. So one of the things that he says is, where does the power difference of an Inquisitor come from? Why are they so much stronger than traditional elementers? And how do they recruit Mistborns into the agency in general? He, of course, finds a number of mistings. I just want, this is a prediction, but I want your thoughts. I My thoughts are pretty simple. I don't think that they're recruited. I think they're they're made. made. I don't think they're found. Interesting. I don't... <laughs> I've been trying to avoid saying interesting because of that tweet that made fun of me for saying interesting when you say shit, but... Yeah, no, exactly. Interesting. Um, no, I, I've mentioned this before. Mm -hmm. I think that the Lord Ruler is able to create Mistborn. Especially if... Especially if... Alamancy is a byproduct of his ascension. I don't see why he couldn't like and if it's true that Alamancy was bestowed upon the like noble families that were what's the what's the term? Like if you're agreeable with not not agree like if you're allied with the Lord Ruler, the idea was that they were bestowed allomancy the other flip side of the coin is that allomancy existed elsewhere yeah and right. anybody that didn't agree with and wasn't allied with the lord ruler was cold like that's those are the two options really with how allomancy was intrinsically tied with the lord ruler's ascension those are those are the two options really it's tough to like pull apart like fucking monkey bread. If it's true that it was something bestowed, that means the Lord ruler is able to imbue power upon something, which would mean that these steel inquisitors don't have to be mistborn. I want to make sure that we're not discounting my monkey bread theory here. Because monkey, monkey bread, bread theory can be pulled out and then stuck anywhere on the monkey bread to like stack in the direction you want to. I mean, it's, you can make it. You can right? you can make. So to your point, I fucking hate you. I hate you so much. Making a cucumbroche out of monkey bread does not make it. 
<laughs> different. <laughs> I'm so glad that's that. So you take you take something you'd shift it a little bit, and that was kind of your perspective on the Lord Ruler, maybe what he's doing with Alamancy, what he what he did with it, and maybe at one point. And I don't know, dude. I don't know. You're a loss for words because I said the monkey bread shit, but the monkey bread shit is fucking ridiculous <laughs> and I love it. We cut from there to this very interesting and aggressive perspective of of a new character, Waylon. Waylon is going through collecting ATM geodes, being suffered and punished by the pits of Hatson. As he crawls down into the crack, he gets pressured as he's like shoveling his way in through his with his shoulders gets the the daggers of the sharp geodes burning into his skin and cutting him and making him bleed against all this and climbing into the rocks this this intense perspective it's very claustrophobic it it makes you feel like you're kind of suffocating for these two pages and it's just it's incredible writing this is some of my favorite writing of the book it's brilliant and this is just another this is a flex of that is is this pressure, this claustrophobia of the pits of Hatson. Mm-hmm. And the moment that he emerges, Wallen emerges, and he sees Kelsier there. And Kelsier says this line, I am what you will soon be. I am a survivor. Fucking is the best line in the fucking book. Yeah. yeah. So I think for me, I just love that we jump perspective here. Like we established early on that perspective does not mean main character. Yes, with trusting. And it allows for this really cinematic framing of the story. Yep. Because like think think about a movie or a TV show or whatever. We haven't talked a whole lot about any sort of adaptation of this story in general, but we but specifically like cinematic adaptation this is something that you need to see is external points of view of things that are happening that are relevant and how else do you see that but a different point of view in a first person story god damn it's great right it's fucking awesome this is so good whalen whalen giving us the lens into the the experience that kelsier had and the, and the pain and the suffering that he experiences the survivor of hatson and like his his being like he fetched a geode he can live for seven more days and he he thinks about that actively and then you cut you cut from this like low perspective of someone crawling out of the pits to kelsier standing on like a hilltop equivalent like just a little bit elevated and and you see this dark figure going you can be a survivor too. You can do this. You will yeah. be this. I'm going to make you this. And that is this intense emotional release from this this guy who is who's portrayed the pain of being in that situation. He's also it's the pain of the scar. It's everything all at once and it's it's impossible to wash it clean. It is he is the perfect mythological figure. Like the yeah. dude not only is is a perfect embodiment of a lot of this stuff, but he is also perfect statue. You know, <sighs> man, I love this. I love this bit. This is again nails it, kills it for me. Yeah, super impressive, super fun. I know it just went off, but did you have thoughts? <laughs> no, no. I mean, that was that was my sort of takeaway from this scene. Was it's perfect, like you said embodying the other pov so we can get someone else we can get another scott we can fit in a realistic 
picture because we've been we we've talked about this before, but like the murder of the Scott earlier out inside of the keep after the ball. It's great, great portrayal of like the Scott to keep us grounded. We had some other moments that have popped up to keep us grounded. This one grounds us the furthest, the deepest, the most in the actual toil of an individual. And that's great. Mm-hmm. So as you know, I, of course, choose to end these episodes as I do, and I love that for us, and you get to be beaten up emotionally by the way that this ends. But I decided, as opposed to like leaving this kind of cliffhanger of Chapter 32, I want to include it here and have this conversation because I think that the pits of hats and destruction that Kelsier goes through here is truly incredible. It's a form of therapy for him and his relationship with Mare and like what he lost here. And this like two pages is also intensely emotional for him. Like he's he remembers crawling through and he remembers the reason that like they couldn't use Alamancers is because it, it's too delicate and it would break and like they'd lose stuff. So it, it is just this combination of emotion, emotive response that like I imagine the like very emotional Magneto scenes from the new trilogy of X-Men movies. So mm-hmm. Michael Fassbender is sitting there and he's he's like focusing, concentrating, freaking the fuck out and controlling things like the bar scene that he does where he like pulls the knife and like stabs someone else in the head. There, there are a number of moments like that. And this has that element to it of intensity that Kelsier really evokes. Dude, it's so good. It's so good. I know I went on like a two minute tirade, but I can't help. Yeah, but like. Regarding Waylon's perspective, take like my takeaway from that is that like it is kind of the realistic and scientific point of view of like what ATM mining is, and that ATM is produced from drippings. Like it's essentially like, is is of these like crystals, and these crystals create or contain trace amounts of ATM and we get this situation where those crystals because they have these trace amounts of ATM mm-hmm. inherently within them can be manipulated by iron like iron as an alimantic force yep iron and steel yeah yeah and pushing, uh, pushing pulling yeah i i guess i guess steel too if you I feel like steel would be safer. So, like, right. why not? Like, if you're all you're planning on doing is destruction, and crystal is sharp, yeah, to say the least. Why not use steel and push things away from you to destroy things? But For either sure. way, yeah, Cape Class yeah. is great. Pits of Hatson, it's revenge for him in its own way. Like, it's revenge against the Lord Ruler. It's revenge for him against House Venture. It is revenge for Mare's death. It is everything at once, all at once, like I've said before. Like, this is so much emotional catharsis for Kelsier. Like, this is the moment in a lot of ways. And it's crazy. So, we move from that. We've got the final logbook entry at the top of chapter 33. We're close now. Oddly, this high in the mountains, we seem to finally be free from the impressive touch of the deepness. 
It has been quite a while since I knew what that was like. The lake that Fedek discovered is below us now. I can see it from the ledge. It looks even more eerie from up here, with its glassy, almost metallic sheen. I almost wish I had let him take a sample of its waters. Perhaps his interest was what angered the mist creature that followed us. Perhaps that was why it decided to attack him, stabbing him with its invisible knife. Strangely, the attacks comforted me. At least I know that another has seen it. And that means that I am not mad. This is a wild way to end the episode, because this is wide-ranging in a lot of assumptions about the deepness, about mists, about the whole thing. And and the idea of this pulsing sound or these people that have been following through the mist. Not people, but like persona, maybe? Right. So these these things throughout this entire book we have been attributing to being mist wraiths. Yeah. As right. it's been explained. Yep. What the fuck is going on <laughs> with the mist race and their ability to invisibly stab people? Like... Dunna, dunna, dunna. <laughs> yeah. I feel that. Like, are we, are we right in being afraid of going out into the, into the mist as Ska? Or... Or, like, are they actually harmless and something else is going on? Like, what the fuck is going on, man? That's the fun part of this section. This, this no, ends, no, 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 This ends no, brilliantly. No, no, give me an answer. Like answer me definitively, and I'll hold you to the Oh, the, the mists are definitely a representation of someone's personality put, put forth by yeah. some, like, extra godly ordinance created by a universe of, of shattered realities that have yeah, then but, traced but what about down, the mist race? That have then traced themselves down to the basis level of this planet, and therefore, this is a manifestation of someone's distant personality. Okay. Do you agree? <laughs> Maybe. That makes it feel so much more clinical, and it also makes it so much more... No, not, not, not necessarily ex- exclusively clinical. It makes it feel so much less external and more it's still external because it's very far off anyway yeah point being, i just yeah but, joke but that's not reality i i know you're making a joke about it but that makes it tied to something tangible and present this is a good clarification point if something like this is tied to something tangible is that a problem for you or or could it be like mathematically in the same way that it's, like it's, it's not a problem. Works? I just I just want to know what that thing is. Got it. Okay. I just just curious. Yeah. Yeah. Not not a problem. And I expect it to be something like that because I don't know. I'm not I'm not one to believe in something that's suddenly entirely universally pervasive. Yeah. Like there's right. got to be a source somewhere whatever that might be there's even a boundary if, even if it's something that's unreachable by humanity it's got to be technically tangible somewhere we are at the end of this week pj i feel like we hit a ton of notes we we were wide reaching and yeah any any other thoughts that you have on this 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 chunk of the book no i think this pretty much covers it cool all right so next yeah. week we embrace the Sander Lanch. We've got 58 pages of madness, chapters 33 through 36. 
this is not the end yet. That will be the penultimate episode to the end of the book. Going to be crazy. Very excited. February is going to be a very fun and exciting month. We, we are leading off the short pours, PJ, with a conversation with PB Doodles about the incredible Red Rising playing cards that are coming. I'm excited to, to talk about that. So like that's going to be cool. a ton of fun. So fucking cool. Following that up on February 14th, we will have a romance episode coming out that I'm a part of. We're going to be talking about the entire spectrum of romance smut and some of the different variables that exist inside of the space. Check out the short pours for sure. And then our third episode, PJ, we're going to announce it here. You do it. Do it. So Rob Hart is the author of the novel The Warehouse, which both of us have read, but he also has a book coming out soon called The Paradox Hotel. And ahead of the release of that book, we are going to be doing an interview with him. We are the release day podcast for that. So we are actually the, perfect. The not the announcement, of course, because it happened prior, but it is fucking incredible. Get your pre-order in right now. You will love it. It's going to be a killer time. I'm very excited for that show. Yeah. So that comes out on February 23rd. So February going to be a packed month for short pours, and then we'll resume the monthly release there in addition to the regular show, of course, that you're listening to. So will not affect this feed. Feed will remain as it is, but we'll just release extra content on short force. All right. So this week's is kind of a combination of things. It's your favorite villain reveal, but it's the idea of tension that's built throughout the story. It's the idea of that like Darth Vader lurking in the background of your story. What's your favorite moral villain conversation that permeates the entire media that you love? Oh, I want you to start with yours this time. Oh, we'll start with mine. Yeah. All right. So my favorite villain reveal is I think I think it'd be fair to say both of our favorite, at least within our top five, I know that for sure because of something that we've talked about before. Video games. Oh fuck. Which is Bioshock. And the reveal of Atlas being Fontaine. And being the actual villain of the entire story. And the way that he's manipulated you the whole time. You as the player, like you as a person, have been manipulated (laughs) by this dude inside of the plot. And it's just like, fuck you, dude. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) It's such a good reveal. It's such a good game. If you've never played Bioshock. It is one of the best Do yourself a favorite. It's so good. Of course, this this section is going to be very heavy in spoilers in general. So following that up, a a similar reveal that kind of hit very deeply. I I love this idea. But so Tim Pearson from our Discord recommended Tyler Durden in Fight Club. I can't fucking believe I didn't think. Is that that a villain? He's that's a that's a hard distinction. Right. So we we did say villain when we were talking about it in our question or posing but it's it is this it is this moment it's this turn of heel kind of like Shannon Ariel, which is what i was trying to play into that for the record because shan yeah. and Cliss both changed very dramatically from how we understand them into this episode so i leaned into that idea here and and i think that fits perfectly right like it's it is yeah. a 
It is a presence. Tyler Durden is this whole thing. For sure. He also said the lead of Gone Girl, which is mine. So mine is Amy Dunn from Gone Girl because I think that is the most brilliant. And they're both David Fincher because David Fincher is a fucking god of film. But that is my favorite reveal of all time in anything is that switch that happens in Gone Girl is fucking perfect. There's Mm -hmm. another fictional. There are two other fictional ones that I love in in books and literature. But if we're if we're talking about something that I don't want to spoil for you because we're going to talk about it. That's it. That's it. That's my choice. All right. Which I totally agree with that for sure. Continue onward. I mean, I'm going to go with shark bait from our discord. Faye villain reveal is a great question. Honestly, I struggle to think of any better than the jackal from red rising. The jackals reveal is also so good. He's got that Darth Vader presence until he shows up. He's lurking, lingering. So the, the next half of this is something I don't understand. So we will continue reading it, but know that I don't know what I'm saying and I don't know how I'm pronouncing it. So, but I do love the rye sand and that's all in all in caps, by the way, and parentheses, the caps are autocorrect and I'm loving it or, and I'm leaving it, but I love it. So yeah. On parentheses reveal in Akotar. What does Akotar stand for? A Court of Thorn and Roses. It's a book series. All right. Yeah. I'm not familiar. There we go, though. Yeah. Um, that has been pervasive throughout our our Discord recently. Akotar. Haven't had the courage to just straight up ask what it stands for until just But now, now. you know. <laughs> it is it is funny, though, in that way. Oh, man. I we, we obviously talked about Fight Club a little bit. I just want to say rip meatloaf for a number of reasons but also talking about yeah he he that was meatloaf died a couple days ago yeah his, his name was actor. robert paulson his name was robert paulson right his name was robert paulson his name was robert paulson his name was robert paulson <laughs> following that up summit from our discord as well one of my favorite villain reveals is in the bone season series by samantha shannon when Paige discovers the human lead Government is actually being run and manipulated by the alien Refan. And I have not read that. And I'm not I familiar want to read either. it because Bone Season hints fantasy, but this hints aliens. Now that you said it, and I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm being thrown for three, three fucking rolls in my hand, and you just fucked it all up. Yep. I love that, though. Yep, exactly. Next, I've got... Ivana from also from our Discord. A lot of these are from patrons. our Discord. Yeah, there are patrons. There are, so our Discord is open to patrons. Patreon.com slash words and whiskey. If you join that, you can get onto our Patreon, like only Discord. But Ivana from our Discord. The first thing that popped into my mind is the reveal of Borg in Star Trek. The cube, the resistance is futile, the feeling of imminent doom. Yeah. So good. This is such a good call. Super good. (laughs) That's a super good answer. This is such a good answer. Borg is incredible. I would also say she mentioned something. If you haven't watched The Usual Suspects. PJ, have you seen The Usual Suspects? I haven't. I can't even say it. That reveal in that movie is another one that she recommends. It's it's it feels like a guy Ritchie film. I will love it. It's it is your type of movie for sure, PJ. 
Sounds awesome. So good. So good. Ivana nailed it this week. So Artificer following up, of course. My favorite reveal is that Tom Hanager, Jensen Ackles, is the bad guy in My Bloody Valentine. And that is that is a great reveal inside of that. It is a it's a trip that no one expects, but like you know him as the bad guy that everyone loves from previous things. So it's like you expect him to be like the the kind of he's got that energy about him, but you want to like him because of that energy. Like he's the bad guy that everyone loves, right? And so when he actually mm-hmm. becomes the bad guy, you're like, oh shit, I was I was I got fucked by the movie and my expectations. Yeah. That sounds perfect. Windrunner from Instagram. We love you, Windrunner. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Windrunner. I have a great villain reveal. But it's from Warbreaker. What do you Which mean, is, but? Like, like you, you, you're being like, I don't know, but it's from Warbreaker. It can be from Warbreaker without being well, but. It, it is from Warbreaker, but we are probably going to do Warbreaker on the show. So. Oh, am I allowed to cautious. read this? <laughs> oh, okay. Perfect. <laughs> Random Cosmere spoiler. I know. Thank you, Windrunner. Awesome. I guess I'll take the next one then. Yeah, for sure. From Marcus. I was having trouble thinking of a good answer to this week's question, so I went to my sister for aid. She said, Jigsaw from Saw. That's, yeah. That's a fucking great answer. I'm not going to lie. Like, that was, yeah. I was like, perfect. That is a perfect <laughs> yeah. answer to this question, because it, it you you obviously have the minister at the entire story of Jigsaw, but then you get the presentation of who he is at the mm. end. Genius. Yeah. What a guy. What a guy. What a good call. What a guy Jigsaw was. For next week, given the way that this chapter's gone, given the way that a lot of things have gone, given our Saw answer here right at the end, we want to ask for your favorite example of torture. Favorite example of torture. Be it it, uh, generally, of course, detestable. It's detestable in nature. But, like, tell us what you think it is. And it can be like either direct or indirect. So the inspiration for this is it could be emotional torture. Like don't it, don't read it wrong. It could be emotional. It could be whatever. Like yeah. here we get within this section of Mistborn the example of what Kelsier went through. Yep. Day in and day out. But specifically, like Kelsier was tortured day in and day out to go find an ATM geode in order to continue living that I would consider to be within the context of what we're asking a form of torture. So Mm -hmm. something like that, something horrific that people are subjected to, whether or not it's a conventional source of torture or not, however you would frame torture to be, I'm cool with it. And I think that is perfect. So with that, Reminder, next week, at the end of this section, of course, we are reading chapters 33 through 36. That's going to be what we're reading next week. It's about 58 pages in the paperback. So it's going to be a fun time. Very excited. And that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep our show's lights on. As they do a always... For the record, they do. They do a shit ton of work. 
As always, check out our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, and our social media accounts all in one very convenient location. How dare you? How dare you? I'm pretty sure we need to make a How Dare You t-shirt at this point because we've said it so much on the show. But on top of that, make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, at Words and Whiskey Pod. Words Whiskey Pod, excuse me. And... Words and Whiskey Show Gmail if you want to answer any of these questions. We share a lot of things on our socials, so check it out there. Again, if you want to join and enter into our community, you can enter at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey for the rest of the month, meaning like literally less than a week at this point. If you want to hop in on it, you can at a $3 price point as an early adopter. Feel free. After January, it'll be at $4 to hop in to our Discord and kind of chat with everyone. You get some bonuses. You get our doubles cuts, which are anything that we chop out of these episodes, plus a bonus question that we, like, kick off with with an icebreaker. So we've got a lot of things coming among the network, including all the interviews that we talked about in Bitch earlier. But it's it's a very exciting time for us. For sure. Do we have – I mean, that's – I guess that's, that's it. Thanks. So cool. Thanks Thank for you. listening. This yeah. has been so much fun. This was a fucking ridiculous episode, but it's been fun. Sayonara, folks. Have a good one. Thanks for listening.